Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask podcast. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Andrew Sullivan. Born in England, Sullivan was for many years known as the most prominent gay conservative in America. He became the editor of the New Republic in his late 20s, and within a decade, he had started blogging, becoming one of the first must-read bloggers on the internet. Sullivan supported the Iraq War in 2003, but eventually turned against the Bush administration because of issues like torture and gay marriage. The latter was something which Sullivan had fervently supported in print all the way back in the 1980s. Sullivan then became one of Barack Obama's most ardent admirers at a time when Obama was running for president against Hillary Clinton and then John McCain. Over the past year, Sullivan has been writing about the menace of Donald Trump, warning America about creeping authoritarianism and the danger Trump poses to American democracy. Sullivan himself became an American last year, a significantly more fraught decision in the age of Trump. He is now a contributing editor at New York Magazine, and his most recent book is The Conservative Soul. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Isaac. Great to hear from you. Great to talk to you. Great to have you here. I um I wanted to ask you, you you wrote a long piece about trying to disengage from the online world, and this piece ended up coming out at what is a pretty lively and terrifying time for those of us who, who do consume a lot of online news. So I'm wondering, now that the Trump administration has started, what's your internet consumption like? I've regressed. I'm, I'm, I'm in a terrible state. I'm looking at the news feed every hour, couple of hours um, before I go to bed. First thing I do when I wake up, it's it's just you're just terrified that however long you're away from the web, something quite horrifying might have occurred. Do, do you find that you're able to enjoy it when you are away? I, I mean, I go back and forth. You know, sometimes when I'm away from it for a few hours, it feels great. And other times I'm anxious thinking, oh, we've gone to war with North Korea or whatever it is. Um. I'm not I know I, I usually find it okay to be away from it. I'm normally doing something um, that's worthwhile. I still meditate every day. Um, I have to walk my dogs twice a day. I go to training three times a week. there are there are ways in which you can get away from it and I I really don't like it. I think it's bad for our brains and our minds and our entire you know physical system to be this addicted to this amount of news or, and constantly in a state of nervous anxiety um, but what choice do we have? Um, this guy is president, and he can do anything, and he's uh, well. He can't read a briefing paper, but he can no. do anything else. He 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 could do anything with his office, and there seems to be no constraints, no procedures, no in any way uh, barrier to him doing something truly dangerous and difficult for the world. But before we get more on Trump, I, ju- I just wanted to ask you, when you look back at that essay you wrote, um, which laid out some of the some of the things you've said today about the the danger and the problems with being addicted to our screens. I mean, do you do you think that if Trump hadn't come along, you could have followed through more with what you hope to accomplish by getting away from electronic devices? Or do you think that in the world we live in, it'll be Trump or it'll be something else? But but always were going to be attached at the hip to these things. No, I really think I might have had a shot if he hadn't come along. <laughs> I mean, I managed to spend a full year detoxing from it and really not focusing on it. Um, and I think maybe that was because I was a little burned out after 15 years of, of hourly blogging. Um, but uh, no, I think I might have pulled it off. Unfortunately, this this horrifying figure has dragged my life and everybody else's down to a hideous level of neurosis and, and fear. 
You you mentioned something, which is that there's sort of nothing that, that can stop Trump at the moment. I, I think some people are feeling, despite the horrific situation we're in, that, in fact, Trump has been sort of boxed in in certain ways. He wasn't able to get a health care overhaul through Congress. Uh, the Muslim ban was blocked by the court system. But it seems like you're more pessimistic despite these early defeats. No, I've been very encouraged and felt certainly a little bit better uh, with the collapse of health care and the the – the exposure of an utterly incoherent uh, right of center party, um, which is at this point at war with itself, cannot even create a functioning agenda. And that is, of course, a huge relief in terms of legislation. Now, the fear for me has always been with Trump, what he might do with executive power, what he might do after a terror attack, what he might do in foreign policy, uh, uh, what he might do with executive orders. That's what I'm worried about um, because there, there's no restraint. Uh, and some of, the, some of the things he's been doing, like completely trashing the EPA, for example, um, you know, is, is well within his rights as, as president. Also, uh, I think having control over the borders is perfectly within his, his remit as, as president of the United States. Uh, but uh, so even if it – even if we survive some of the worst attempts at big legislative change, I think his, the, what he's doing to the Western alliance, uh, what he's doing with immigration, what he's doing for the rules of warfare and the laws of warfare, uh, what he's doing to the image of the United States, what he's doing to the possibility of European unity and for the Western alliance, all these things are day by day eroding. And uh, it's, 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 it's easy to be reassured by the fact he couldn't get healthcare through in however long, eight weeks he wanted to do it in. Um, but that's always going to be hard. You, you've you written negatively about Trump for a long time. Uh, but I, I was wondering now that he's been president for two and a half months, is there something that, that surprises you about him, about, about the way his presidency's gone or about him as a person that is is different than what you thought a year and a half ago? Or is it basically that this monstrous figure who showed up on the scene in 2015 is basically basically himself and doesn't change and so on? Yeah, I do. I think he's the same person he's always been. Uh, I, I think he's incapable of persuading anybody really. I mean, when I say persuading someone, I mean marshalling arguments to help them come to his point of view as opposed to whipping up hysteria um, you know, exploiting certain parts of the human psyche and promising and selling a, a bill of goods. That's what he's good at. I think what surprised me is just how lazy the man is, how completely unfocused really, uh, how he only cares about quote-unquote winning. He doesn't really care about the substance of what he's doing. That he seems in his actions so far to have absolute contempt for the people who voted for him, however much he says he he loves them, but the the things he's doing, I mean, things he wants to do, such as the budget, are just devastating for his base. Um, it, it's interesting that you mentioned his lack of focus because to to bring it back to you, you said you mentioned that you were very scared of terrorist attacks. As I think, I think everyone is what it would mean in this current age. But there was the attack in London a couple weeks ago, and I had sort of assumed that. Steve Bannon would have Trump being out there waving a flag and basically making some speech about Muslims or about God knows what. And instead, you know, Trump basically didn't say anything and instead used that day to make another stupid comment about Obama surveilling him. 
Yeah, I think I think that his vanity and narcissism means that he's partly incapable of actually looking at the world and changing it. Um, he's he's. I mean, the fact that he's spending, you know, plenty of hours of the day watching Fox as opposed to actually doing the job, the fact that he's clearly not doing the job in any serious way um, is, I guess, a relief. But the signals he's still sending uh, across the world are, are still uh, real. I mean, happily, I think that many of these foreign leaders are beginning to realize that he's essentially a joke, that, that this petulant performance with Angela Merkel was just really pathetic. Um, and his bluster on everything. I mean, essentially what he's, what he's kind of lost over the last eight weeks in office is any sort of ability to be, to be believed uh, for good reason. Uh, and once a president has no reason to be believed, then he soon becomes irrelevant, except in his case, I think the irrelevance that he may suffer which I think is partly happening, does not remove the possibility he might do something to make himself relevant within the executive powers. And I think that's what I'm concerned about at this point. I, I was going to ask you, the, the fact that so many Republicans and the vast, vast majority of Republican voters have decided to vote for Trump and, and are still supporting him, has that sort of changed your mind as a, as a longtime conservative yourself about who the voters are that have given conservatives power throughout the Western world? Or do you feel like this is a specific thing going on in the United States and these voters have had certain experiences in the last few years and that is to explain Trump? Or do you, or do you feel like undergirding conservatives in political power are these very scary realities that are finally sort of coming to the surface? A little bit of both, actually. I mean, no one, broadly speaking on the right, can deny that certain feelings, and that's the word really, feelings, do motivate uh, the conservative base. I do think feelings also motivate the liberal base as well in different fashions. And I think both are becoming more emotional and less rational. Um, but has it confirmed my fears that the conservative movement is actually just depraved, that it doesn't have any ideas for government, that it is essentially a conjuries of, 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 of hatreds and fears, uh, yes, it has. And I think it's also revealed that the, the core idea of at least the conservative movement in this country since, since the 60s and 70s, that people are in favor of small government and, and individual freedom, uh, has been kind of exploded. Um, I, don't, I think they're confused in many ways. They, they mouth these things, but it's quite obvious that at least Trump's base voters do not want uh, small government except in the abstract. They certainly want big government insofar as it can help them. Uh, and I also don't want to underestimate the, both the economic and social pressures on large amount, large numbers of the, the white working and middle class. Um, I think that's real. That's why you see these movements occurring not just in the United States, but obviously in the UK and France and Germany even, uh, these are people are responding to not just the economic bleakness of the future for them, but also the social collapse around them, the collapse of the, the rural white family, for example, which is now mimicking almost exactly what we saw happen to the black family in the 70s and 80s in the inner cities. Now, that's a, 
and the rise of drug abuse, obviously, and uh, the dysfunction in many of these places. Uh, I think it's it's it, that is relatively new in a way, but it, and it compounds and forces people back to even more of their worst instincts. And the fact that we have someone who isn't even attempting to talk them out of their worst instincts or channel it for good, as opposed to just plundering and exploiting those instincts, is is what's dangerous. You've been writing about Trump and kind of the illiberal tide that we're seeing, but but I, you know, reading your writing for a long time, I think. You also have always had a certain sympathy for critiques of the liberal order. Um, you've you wrote even recently. You had mixed feelings about Brexit. You've always been someone who considers yourself a conservative and a religious conservative, although not in the way we think of those terms now. And so, I, I guess I'm wondering. I mean, you, maybe you can talk about your your feelings about Brexit here, but but it does seem that you yourself sort of see more shades of gray. Am I? Does that seem right? I see. I see shades of gray in the forces that have helped propel him to this level of power. Yes, and I. I feel conflicted about that. It's a it's a very tough time um, for those of us on the right who are trying to grapple with what's happened in the economy and the world in general. I do think, for example, that we need a better control over immigration. Um, I've 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 long I've felt that for, for several years because of the extraordinary shift in immigration patterns in this country and also elsewhere. And I think when that happens, when you have a a, a cultural transformation in many ways in, in quite short period of time. Uh, the, the nature of national cohesion, a sense of one nation, uh, comes under threat. Um, so, yeah. And I also think that the, the way in which the economy has moved and globalization has affected people, I think it is laying waste in many ways to a lot of people's lives and the meaning of their lives. And it seems to be unstoppable. The, the force of global capitalism is seemingly uh, unstoppable or untamable, or even you can't even slow it very much. And you see that in some ways. You see that in the danger signs, obviously, with our climate, uh, where things seem to be tipping out of control. But I think in the sense that people feel they have control over their own lives, that they know what they're going to be able to do in their lives, uh, that they won't have to reinvent themselves multiple times over. Or that automation and technology is actually going to deprive them of, of any sort of meaning and living and dignity in the future. And I think that's real. I really do. And I, I think that the liberals who simply assume that these are just you know, passing problems or that shouldn't be addressed um, are completely fooling themselves. And, and Trump is what happens when you let that vacuum appear. Right. I, I guess the question is, what it, what is to be done about that vacuum? Um, how how can that be remedied? And I think more than just how can it be remedied, but how can it be remedied by um, political parties in the case of the Democrats here or Labor Party in Britain that have come to be seen by majorities in these countries as sort of vehicles of, you know, multiculturalism and um, so on. Yeah, I think a lot of that is is essentially irrelevant for a large number of people. I mean, they think they're facing much more profound and basic questions, such as can they own a living? If they have to own a living, does it mean anything? Will it demoralize them? They're living in communities which are clearly manifestly dying in front of them, that the meaning of place has evaporated, um, that 
without also the collapse of, of, of real religion, by which I mean people actually going to church every week and belonging to a community around shared values. That too has has disintegrated in many of the places. Right. But the, I guess the question that may, maybe we disagree or I'm not sure what I think, but but it does seem that it becomes, at least it seems like from the modern world, it becomes very difficult for those people who are searching out something to get it from elites that they see as, you know, whether it's a black president or whether it's um, a political party they see as being aligned with minority interests, whatever country we're talking about. It seems like they don't want to hear those messages from, I mean, we can all agree, for example, Hillary Clinton was a horrifically bad messenger, but it also seems like there are structural reasons that that they turn to people like Trump for these messages having to do with race and things like that. Yeah, I think that that, I think, I think the sense that liberals are utterly obsessed with questions of identity because many of them in the elites have other of the basic questions of their lives resolved um, or in which the entire world is interpreted entirely through this notion of one group hurting another group, hurting another group within which there's another group that's hurt. And, and, and that process, which they hear from from the left constantly, it just seems irrelevant. But do you think, though, that there's this thing where when people, um, whether they're transgender or Jamaican or God knows what else, when they sort of want to talk about expressing their identity, it's seen as identity politics. But if you're Irish American in Boston and you talk about Irish pride all the time and you go to Irish, you know, St. Patrick's Day marches, that that's not seen as identity politics, that there's sort of a double standard there for groups that are part of the majority and groups that aren't. Well, I think identity politics requires also a sense that you are profoundly oppressed uh, and that something must be done about this, uh, whereas you don't really see the Irish doing that. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're relatively confident <laughs> at this point in their identity. And it's the people who are absolutely um, sort of isolated and feel threatened because of their identity. Um, and the question really is, are they? Is this really the fundamental problem in our society? Um, it seems sometimes with many of my liberal friends, almost every question, every issue in life, the only real vice is, is bias, prejudice, or as they always call it, hate. And that's – they live their lives with that as the fundamental issue in their lives. We do have a racist president now. We do. Um, we do. We absolutely do. But uh, this was going on long before that and it expresses itself, for example, on the campus left with this extraordinary illiberalism, uh, hatred of, of, of people whose opposing views are always denigrated, not because – they're wrong or foolish, but because they are racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever, transphobic, you, you can go on down the list. Um, and that's, that's problematic. Um, I mean, it's problematic, for example, that the left during 2016 was busy complaining that the dean of Yale is a racist and uh, shutting down conservative speakers on campus while there was an actual out-and-out neo-fascist running for president. And they had... Very little to say about it, except they weren't going to vote for Hillary. Um, that's that's the problem here. They've lost perspective, I think. Let me ask you about Brexit. Did it did it surprise you that um, your former countrymen decided to uh, vote to exit the European Union, or do you think that that was sort of a long time coming 
Oh, yeah. I was not surprised at all by Brexit. I was sitting up late watching the returns come in and could see it was going the way it was going suddenly. And uh, uh, not surprised at all. And my brother and my father voted for it. I know lots of people who supported it and still support it. I mean, they're not in any way. Uh, what happened is that it seems to me that people haven't seen, I wrote about this in my diary this week, is, is that it's a staggering fact that each, each of the last three years, more people have immigrated to the United Kingdom than integrated from the entire period of 1066 to 1950. <laughs> uh, England was never a big immigrant society, uh, unless you count the Anglo-Saxons and the Jutes and the Danes in the, in the early uh, first millennium. And who um, doesn't? And this massive social change has really changed the meaning of the country itself to those who live in it. And it turns out that they'd rather have that identity in place as a nation then they would uh, see the the bankers and the the, the elites in, in in the UK do so well out of globalization, and and that's you know that's frightening. When you talk to your to your dad and your brother, say about about this, what what, what how do they think about? It? Do they phrase it in the terms that you phrased it in, or do they? How do they think about it? They think about it simply as them not having any democratic voice in their own country. So if they, if they felt that this large increase in immigration, which seemed to be absolutely unstoppable, was continuing, and they voted for a conservative government that said it would restrain it to the tens of thousands, a year later, it's still 300,000 people coming in a year from the EU and 300,000 people coming from outside the EU. And the Tories, David Cameron, simply said to them, I have no control over this. I can't stop it. We are bound by these treaties and anybody who wants to live here can live here. Uh, and at that point, my brother was like, well, if I don't like a policy, I like to vote the person out um, and change it. And I know it doesn't make a difference here. So I don't live in a democracy anymore. I don't even live in a country. I live in some global uh, transnational state which insists on certain rules which which have clearly hurt many people throughout Europe. I mean – Look at the Greeks. They, they don't have any, any chance to control their own economy and they're being punished endlessly by German-imposed austerity. Look at, look at what Cameron asked Merkel before the referendum. He said, just give me something. Give me something to say there could be maybe a temporary pause because we are having unprecedented numbers of immigrants. Uh, could you help me get some sort of pragmatic solution here? Absolutely not. You know, <laughs> no way. The Treaty of Rome stays in place. You're stuck with the euro. You'll damn well take whatever people come over your border. You have no say in the matter because, because Europe rules and Europe rules by a completely unelected and dictatorial commission. Uh, and people are just told to get on with it. Uh, and I think at some point there's a reaction to that. It's like, no. and I, I mean, I can hear it in your voice, right? I mean, I think you have a certain amount of sympathy for that argument. I do. Is, yeah, I absolutely do. I, I would have voted to stay because I think practically speaking, the impact on, on the British economy and the impact on the global, uh, the global order, namely enabling and rewarding Putin and Russia in its attempt to break up the EU and indeed, you know, retroactively rewarding the American president in his attack upon the West. He's a, he's a, this president of the United States is the first one to really say, they re we don't, you can't really take it as our word that we'll defend you if you're attacked. 
And we actually want to tear apart the European Union. We support Brexit. Brexit. I would just say to bring this full circle, the, the, the thing about powerlessness that you said earlier about sort of groups expressing their identity because they feel powerless or they feel put upon, that doesn't seem that different from the way you just described your dad and brother feeling powerless and put upon by different elites, perhaps. But um, it, it's interesting to me that that sort of you have all these different groups feeling like they are losing control in some way. Yeah. Well, they are, aren't they? I mean, they... There were they, they, their parents didn't grow up in a situation where they'd have to have five different jobs over a lifetime, um, especially men. I think, to be honest with you, especially working class men who who are not wrong. They're just not wrong in seeing that the future is incredibly bleak for them. The kind of jobs that are appearing are much more conducive to to women than to men. The meaning of their lives, the status they once held as men in a, in a, in a largely sexist society has disappeared. And you can say boo-hoo. And I think one should say boo-hoo at some level. At, at the same time, you have to see where they're coming from and see that they're not wrong about the future in this country. They're not wrong about the future demography of this country. And they feel like all this was done without their consent, without any say in the matter. Uh, and when they feel that way, and if the major parties do not adjust, and I think with Bernie Sanders, the Democrats were adjusting somewhat in a, in, in a, in a left of center way uh, towards these emerging needs. But um, it certainly wasn't happening with Clinton. I, I want to, speaking of, you, you mentioned immigration a couple times. Uh, you yourself became an American, I guess, last year in December. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, you wrote, a, you wrote a long piece for The Atlantic about that. I, I mean- I would have, as someone who's read your work for 15 years, I would have always described you as someone who was a bit of an American exceptionalist, um, who who definitely saw in America uh, things that you felt like you did not get in Britain and uh, had a appreciation for what you thought was this country's historic role as a defender of democracy and so on. Um, the whole idea now, we you, you sort of say the words American exceptionalism. Um, I mean, whatever you thought of it in the past, no matter what now, you kind of start giggling because it sounds so ridiculous. What, what do you think about that concept now? It's obviously under great strain. Um, uh, I think the fact that we have a president who seems to admire authoritarians more than he does democratic allies uh, who's who's going to give the Egyptian uh, tyrant more respect and more love than he did the German chancellor. Uh, the fact that he's undermined key rules of law and warfare in the targeting or the indifference towards the effect of, of civilians being killed, the fact that he's an aggressive and enthusiastic supporter of torture, um, these just strike real blows at my understanding of what America has been and always stood for and, and is rendering us like any other superpower but with, with, uh, with malign and self-interested intent. I mean, the fact that he, he admires Putin, openly admires the kind of horrifying violence and oppression that this man represents uh, 
is is in some ways a bit of a death knell for an well, understanding. But, but aside from that, I mean, no, that's that's so true. I mean, but but the fact that he was sort of possible um, has, has that sort of changed your fundamental notion of the country that. I assume you would have thought, like most people, myself included, that Trump just could not get elected here. I didn't. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't. And and I kind of said he was going to. All last year, I was panicked. Uh, Oh, I was panicked. I just didn't think that he was going to actually win. Oh, I did. Um, I could feel it um, in my bones. Uh, Look, how does one put this? Uh, There are certain buttons that politicians in – mature liberal societies do not press. And they do not press them even though they can work for them because they have an understanding of a civilized order in which you don't appeal to real, raw, racist feelings or nativist feelings or isolationist feelings or uh, the things that, that, that Trump appealed to uh, as a thug. This is, you know, it's always been there in America. It's never disappeared. I think particularly since the Second World War, um, we felt we had gotten past it. Um, but, but no, I think it, it's back. Um, in other words, I don't think this is completely brand new in America. But that it had such mainstream support and, and, and almost uh, majority support in the country behind someone who was self-evidently at the time clearly – unfit for the office and uh, the, the meanest, nastiest, foulest strain in American political life. Yeah, it does, does render it the dream, the American dream, a uh, certain sound. I mean, after I, 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 becoming a citizen, I mean, once it happened, I, I, I tried to do it before the election, but, but it was stuck in line. And afterwards, just, I mean, I went into a, a serious depressive episode. I just, this, it was like, how did that was, manifest itself? I couldn't get out of bed. Um, I just – I had to get on meds to sort of believe in this thing again, um, to, to really feel like – I mean I, I'm not – I can't – I wasn't the only one doing this. But it was a heartbreak. It was like becoming an American just when being an American seemed less special, even in some ways sad. Do, do you think that your specific – I guess maybe this is what I'm getting at is that your – the specific depression you felt was not just as a citizen of you know the world, to use a loaded phrase, or as a person living in the world or as someone who was scared for the suffering that lots of people were going to go through, but also that Trump's election and what he represents for someone who writes about ideas and has written about, um, about America a lot and about sort of um, – political philosophy and, and your own values that it, it sort of it sort of undermines I'm not saying it makes your work valueless or my work valueless, but it it's it feels like maybe there's sort of a specific blow to the way you conceive of what you do or what you think. Yes. I mean being a writer in this context in which you really hope in some ways that people will of various political hues will at least listen to certain arguments or engage them. That, that, that what you're writing is true as opposed to false, that what you're writing is more than propaganda, uh, that that whole space for civic debate is, um, is, has been narrowed and, and narrowed uh, by both sides. I mean, I can feel it almost when I write pieces that aren't completely going to satisfy the, the left at this point, even though I'm 
the very anti-Trump. I just feel like I'm basically – I've always been a bit lost ideologically between left and right. But now it seems particularly uh, sort of futile in a way if you're not careful thinking about the, thinking about it that way uh, to continue contributing to a discourse in which no one seems to be listening to reason, in which everybody is responding in this incredibly emotional and uh, polarized way. That's that's bad news for a writer in some ways in terms of getting the audience because the other thing that magazines used to do was really uh, – and newspapers were able to do was really have a monopoly of this kind of conversation and therefore able to, to actually persuade people to read things they weren't necessarily otherwise willing to read. Well, with the internet and with Twitter and with – with blogging and all of it, um, no one has to – I mean, this is a tired cliche at this point, but no one has to really listen to those of the opposite. Well, it also way. seems like it's it's a dangerous thing for a writer, even if true in a specific case, that you don't want to you don't want to feel like you're the lone voice speaking out for truth and nobody's listening and nobody's – I mean, you want to feel like your work will be examined critically but also seriously and that people will take it and um, – you know, improve on your ideas or work with them or whatever, rather than, um, wow, there are all these people out there and, you know, who knows if they even think this is this is real. Yeah, and not only that, but of course, the economics of media means that even though we flatter ourselves that we're not doing this just for the page views and the money, uh, that relationship is so much more direct than it ever used to be. So that any magazine putting out a thoughtful writer that doesn't pander to either side um, is going to notice over time that person isn't going to do as well in terms of page views and and uh, visits and and individual what individual unique visitors to their site, and so however much we try and resist it, the very nature of the reorganization of media also empowers that kind of polarization, as I'm sure you know. I'm oh, sure. we're doing this podcast for the money, so believe me, <laughs> I, I do know. I, I was just just one more one more thing on this broader subject, which is that you've written about this as sort of like our generation's biggest struggle. Um, Trump is this sort of generationally defining challenge. But, you know, I think that you your response to to, to the 9-11 attacks was was somewhat similar in that you you thought the 9-11 attacks were a civilization shaping event, which they have turned out to be. And also you also, I would say, um, grew very critical of the Bush administration's response to 9-11, even though you initially supported the Iraq war. And so I, I guess I was wondering if, you know, I mean, I think you and I agree about Trump and think that this is the sort of civilizationally defining challenge at the moment. Um, but but did sort of the certainty that you or a lot of people felt after 9-11 make you question your own assumption of what really matters? Yes. Um I do, and I ask myself, am I, am I overreacting to this? Am I, am I, do I have too little faith in the institutions of our you know, liberal democracy? Uh, have I you know, been too much of a drama queen about this? Um, and, you know, I wasn't going to say it, Andrew. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely unself-aware. Um, I, <laughs> I do have this capacity to sort of emotionally respond to things rather viscerally. And I'm, one of the reasons I don't blog anymore is because it does give me some time to cool off. You know, I'm not just instantly responding to things in, in, in the way that I do emotionally. Um, but uh, so it does. And I have to say, I mean, I will say that 
the last two months have been generally encouraging from the point of view of the institutions of our liberal democracy. Um, I do think the press has stood up and I think I've been relieved at how confident they've been. I think the way in which the the Congress has actually been a, an important uh, bar to Trump getting whatever he wants, uh, even a Republican Party has been encouraging. I think the way in which the courts you have You mean on health care? Yeah. I mean, it's encouraging they can't do anything. I mean, it's encouraging that his, his word was not simply followed entirely um, by the Republicans, um, that they were capable of having another idea or principle uh, irrespective of follow my leader. Um, and so all of that is to the good, I think, all of it. And I think some of the stuff he's trying to do um, uh, may not be that lasting um, if we're lucky. Um, I fear that uh, that in some ways when we look back on this period and things that can't be undone, I fear the climate will be high on that list, uh, that the, the decision to simply – to simply walk out of the global conversation about how we save this planet um, is extremely worrying. And I think also the, the trashing of truth or any respect or interest in the truth as an objective arbiter as opposed to a simple means to communicate your own will to power is a hugely dangerous and, and worrying trend um, when combined with the kind of structure of media we have. So. Yeah, I think those things are bad. But in general, I think we're better off than I thought we would be by now. Do you, you said, you know, sometimes you question your own assumptions. You think, oh, am I overreacting? Do you, do you feel the opposite, which is kind of contempt for people who don't see what's going on? Because I think I was so wrong about Iraq and how to counter Islamic terrorism, I am much – I'm sort of chastened by that and I, I'm – I, I'm more content not to rail at people who are being complacent or rail at people who actually support him and try and understand where they're coming from. Um, and I mean, I think what, I, what I've discovered is that I think the reasons for Trumpism are real. And, and I don't think either party has really done a good enough job of understanding it or moving forward. And part of that is a function of the fact that the elites aren't affected by these things in a way that a lot of ordinary people are around the country. And a number like a GDP figure or unemployment figure doesn't convey the reality of what's happening out there. You, um, you, I think, wrote one of the first cases for gay marriage of, uh, in a major magazine in the United States, if that's, I think, in 1989. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. The the Trump administration, I mean, there were they've they've taken a couple small steps against sort of transgender rights issues and also obviously the people they're going to appoint to to the courts will probably not uh, look fondly on gay rights, but they basically have not included gay people in the list of sort of things they've tried to demagogue. And I was wondering what you made of that, what you thought that said about our current moment, or if you thought that no, at some point gay people would also start being demagogued by them in a very public way? Well, I, I, you know, Trump was the first nominee for the Republican Party to actually, however excruciatingly, uh, give a nod to what he called LGBTQ people, if such people actually exist, which of course they don't. But, but uh, and has not, you know, Gorsuch, if you think about what Gorsuch said in the hearings compared to what Scalia had said over the years, about uh, 
gay people, then it does seem as if we're in a different space um, than we used to be. And and I do think, you know, it's 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 one of the few changes in a uh, what you might call quote unquote liberal direction that seems permanent. So the question is to ask oneself, why did we succeed where so many other liberal causes, for example, have not succeeded? And I think the answer is we really did reach out to right of center people and say, explain ourselves and persuade and argue and talk and open ourselves up to the other side and hopefully get a reasoned debate that finally changes people's minds. And when their minds are changed, uh, the, the law and the, the courts uh, will follow. And I think that's the lesson to be drawn from it. In, in some ways, by emphasizing the things we had in common with heterosexuals, as opposed to the things that heterosexuals were oppressing us with, the attempt to find a unified national uh, debate about this rather than polarizing it helped us succeed. And I'm afraid I see that many of these other, you know, legitimate issues around identity have not taken that tack. Um, they've not been patient. They haven't respected uh, people's religious beliefs. They haven't listened to what they're saying. They haven't been patient in in explaining. I think this has been one reason why the transgender movement has had a has had a rough time. I mean, it made some steps forward, but it's also had a rough time. It's because you just got to persuade. You've got to explain. You've got to talk. You've got to live with injustice. Uh, Did you feel that way when you felt you were living under injustice that, you know, just got to wait and persuade? Yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, the record is clear. Um, I did. I didn't want us to seek. Uh, I opposed, for example, the idea that marriage equality in one state should mean it in every other. I opposed that. Um, I was always the person saying slower is better slower will help us win more securely than faster. Um, so I, I was, you know, that's one reason, you know, I'm regarded as a conservative among in the gay community because I'm really a gradualist and I didn't want the courts to mandate this. I thought that would create a, a horrible backlash that would hurt us. And I think the attacks on religious freedom that the gay rights movement um, is now involved in uh, is also a very, very bad and and sort of futile thing to do. I think it will create a backlash when, where no backlash should have been felt. I mean, in other words, I think people forcing bakers or florists to cater to weddings they're not comfortable with um, are being intolerant and they're being hostile to uh, people of genuine faith in this country. Speaking of faith, you've written a lot about your own Catholic faith and um, have talked about the Republican Party's relationship to the religious right wing a lot. Uh, I, I was curious, did it did it surprise you, even even though you'd, you'd written about this subject for a long time, the degree to which religious people in this country or church-going people, um, white church-going people to be more specific, the vast, vast majority of them uh, threw in their lot with Trump, who's such an obvious fraud on religious matters as on so many other things? Yeah. I think even I was a little shocked by that. Now, you know, we Catholics weren't as bad, um, but I uh, I think it was pretty evenly split with a small majority for, for Trump. But the fact that any Catholic or anyone who regards themselves in any way Christian could vote for this man is, is just beyond me, except to have become entirely a cynical, instrumental element um, 
In other words, I think I, I, I was crushed by the way evangelicals really had no apparent uh, concern about someone who has said things that are so foul, so hostile to anything in the Gospels, uh, and has shown himself such sort of contempt and cynicism towards genuine religious faith. Just It really did shock me. What does that tell you about American religion right now or American Christianity? Well, I will note um, that it's I, – I mean, my first response to that is it's in collapse, uh, that, that, that Christianity as a living, breathing uh, faith is, is collapsed. I will, I will note one thing, one small hope, which is that when you double down on the numbers, you find that church-going, people who actually were going to church and were involved in evangelical activities – were much less likely than those who simply called themselves that as a kind of identifier, cultural identifier. Um, so the more church-going you were, the less likely you were to vote for Trump. But you were still likely to vote for him. And uh, I, I think the one reason, to be honest, that worked is the religious freedom question. I do think in a way, in a way that marriage equality's success has truly terrified a large number of uh, evangelicals, even Catholics in this country, who really do believe that the left has absolute contempt for anything in their in their theology that that does not comport with the kind of identity politics that belongs. So, so there's no respect, for example, for the biblical and theological defense of uh, uh, b- preventing homosexuals from marrying or even having sex. And I think. And I think when, you know, when colleges have their accreditation taken away from them, when the education policy, when the, this, the government itself, the federal government itself mandates every school in the country has to have suddenly an entirely new and un, unthought of policy on transgenders, transgender bathrooms and imposes it without any real consultation as a civil rights matter, without any dialogue. Um, then they, their backs are up. They feel they're cornered. They feel that this is their last stand. And I think that desperation did, did play a part in, uh, in Trump. And the, and, and the fact that many liberals simply treat the idea of religious freedom with contempt in a way uh, has not helped at all. But, but nonetheless, Christianity is in crisis. It's an intellectual crisis. It's in an absolutely existential crisis in this country. Um, and Something has to give at some point. We have to reinvigorate our faith or re- recenter it if we are going to, if we're going to help the world be a little better because of it. And that's that's part of what we're trying to do. Going back to you, Andrew, I wanted to know um, besides meditation, what what are your what are your kind of coping strategies for for dealing with all this? I've been really. I mean, I say I haven't been coping very well. <laughs> I'll be totally honest with you. I really have been suffering. Failed coping strategies are fine too. Fail. Well, you know, I had to go on antidepressants, um, which have helped stabilize things. Um, you know, it's weird. My dogs, <laughs> sort of spending time with 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 them, spending time out of doors now more in nature um, helps. I think restricting as far as one can one's, one's phone use and, and computer use as much as you can. My faith, um, the fact that it's still going to be Holy Week next week and, and, and we, can, you know, we can find peace and transcendence in those ancient rituals and rites uh, and, and sacraments. 
that helps. Your family helps. Uh, uh, for me, also, writing helps. It's therapy for me. I mean, it, it's, I didn't realize how much therapy it was when I gave it up for a year and had to observe this horrible development and, and not be able to really respond to it publicly. Uh, so all those things help, all the, all the important great things, um, God, friendship, family. Andrew Sullivan, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Isaac. Sorry I wasn't more cheerful. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss an episode of I Have to Ask. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd love to hear from you, too. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Slate.